0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare.
1: And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows.
0: We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, August 1st, 2021. The summer is is moving past us. We're officially in the second half of the year. Yeah. Crazy. And... We thought that this would be the hot vax summer. It has not been that. It's been a summer I didn't
1: know that's what you thought, but okay. (laughs) That's what people were saying. I know. It's just hot vax summer is not something I've heard you say (laughs) all summer long.
0: (laughs) Hot with two T's. No. No.
1: Yeah. Apparently it's the Delta variant summer.
0: Yes. It's the variant summer.
1: Major buzzkill.
0: Yeah. And we're going to be talking, at least I am, a lot about that this episode.
1: I'm going to be talking again about the January 6th insurrection and the committee to investigate it. All right. And some other stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, let's just dive straight in then. Uh, well, actually, maybe we do want to say what shows we covered.
1: I guess. I. Well, NBC is still covering the Olympics. So yeah. there was not a fresh episode of Meet the Press.
0: I, I mean, I hope Chuck Todd's on a serious vacation. I hope so. This These- is a serious you know, delay in the show.
1: I mean, he does have another week, like a daily show during the week, but I hope they're resting. They yeah. deserve it. Yeah. I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper. And I looked at this week, which was hosted by Jonathan Carl.
0: And I looked at the two Fs, Face the Nation and Fox News Sunday. Fs as in that's what they start their name with, not that we're giving them a letter grade of F.
1: Yes, we've retired ratings. yes
0: hence we are moving straight into quality questionable naomi did you have a quality or questionable today
1: i have a quality great because i had
0: a questionable
1: interesting so my quality was something that i saw on state of the union and it was i think an important clarifying comment that i heard in the interview with Alexandria ocasio-cortez of course she is the congresswoman from new york some people like to say she's the or one of the prominent faces of the progressive part of the party, of the Democratic Party. And she was on talking about several things. She talked about the eviction moratorium that House leadership failed to bring up. But the part that really stood out to me in terms of just really smart messaging was a moment in the interview when they were talking about the infrastructure bill, specifically the reconciliation bill that is in the House that There's kind of two, it's kind of like package two, right? Which is the so-called like human infrastructure. Right. And in a lot of shows in the last few weeks, it's always kind of seen as the secondary negotiation, kind of supplementary. And... The subtext is: let's cross our fingers, maybe it'll pass.
0: In a lot of conversations you're saying.
1: Right, that we've seen in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case here. And I thought Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did a really good job really elevating that piece of legislation as equally viable, equally important as package one, which is being worked out in the Senate. Take a listen to this first clip where she makes the case.
2: You just heard uh, Joe Manchin a few moments ago talk about the reconciliation bill. That's the bigger budget package, 3.5 trillion dollars. He said he can't give him any guarantee that it would pass the Senate. What was your response to that?
3: Well, listen, this deal, these deals on infrastructure that have gone out are not just bipartisan, but they are also bicameral. And it was very, it was made that means very House and clear. Senate. Yes, that means House and Senate. And so it was made very clear at the beginning of this process that this bipartisan deal, if it even survives the Senate, the only chance that it has at passing the House is if, the house passes the senate bill and if the senate passes the house bill which is largely in reconciliation and so we can't just have one body driving the entire legislative agenda for the country and frankly 20 senators that within that one body and so we need a reconciliation bill if this bipartisan bill is going to if we want this bipartisan bill to pass
1: i thought that was really interesting kind of rejecting the notion that there's package 1 and package 2 and really without saying so that there's two deals at the same time. That both of their successes are tied to each other.
0: Yeah, I mean it's very similar to what the original talk was <laughs> right. when the deal was made, and then Biden had to go out and say, "Oh no, no, no!" Just kidding. Sorry about Please that.
1: Please don't listen to me. Right. And then AOC continues on and really starts talking about how the Senate needs to understand that anything that they work on in the on the on the Senate side is not guaranteed to pass in the House.
2: You have called out uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema for saying she does not support the budget reconciliation package, Mm -hmm. $3.5 trillion uh, for all sorts of priorities. You, You wrote, quote, good luck tanking your own party's investment on child care, climate action and infrastructure while presuming you'll survive a three vote House margin.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This is the deal. And we have a tight margin in the Senate. I respect that we have to get Senator, you know, Cinema and Mansion's vote on reconciliation. They should also respect that there's a very tight house margin and that we have to be able to uphold our end of the bargain as well. And House Progressives are also part of that of that majority. And how many so,
2: how many House Progressives do you think are with you on this?
3: I believe a very large amount of the Progressive Caucus. The total amount is about 90. I, you know, I, I am not the the whip of the Progressive Caucus, <laughs> but what I can tell you is that it's certainly more than 3. Um, And it is in the double digits, absolutely.
2: Enough to prevent it from passing.
3: More than enough.
0: Wow, she's really um, bringing out the guns here. You know, she's not kidding around about this and the numbers and the issues here. You know, I heard from Senator Joe Manchin on one of my programs. He was presented with this quote from AOC, and he said, You know, previously it said, yeah, you know, we want to work with our colleagues in the House and we respect them. And yeah, I worry about the budget deficit with the size of this. But if we can pay for it, it might be okay. But specifically to this quote, his response was, well, there might be many, many Republican representatives who want to pass the bipartisan bill. I don't expect it's just going to be the Democrats carrying it in the House.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Well, obviously, Manchin didn't hear this because he went before AOC, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that's an interesting addition that he included in his talking points in that subsequent interview that you heard.
0: Yeah, well, it wasn't a quote from this interview. It was what she had written, right? What, oh, what I, see, I see. What Jake Tapper read at the beginning. Yeah, good luck tanking your own party's investment.
1: I just want to give credit where credit is due. Three or four years ago, I'm thinking closer to like 2016, 2018, where the progressive side of the Democratic Party was greatly focused on Bernie Sanders and the tone and tenor really echoed a lot of his talking points. And it often felt like there was very shallow strategy to try to convince people that there was serious weight to be considered when negotiating with Democrats essentially. And I just thought this was very smooth, very smart strategy to say, listen, like." Both of these packages are equally important. Both of these packages need to be respected. The margins of both, in both houses are very narrow and need to be respected. I can't you know, we have spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about what Kyrsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are going to do. And there's so much attention on these moderate Democrats in the Senate and very little attention on the progressives in the House that, are really consolidating their power and are really making the case here about this second package, this reconciliation bill. So I just, it really stood out to me as real growth from the progressive side of the party and really showing their weight on the Sunday morning shows.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have talked about whether this progressive caucus essentially is its own kind of freedom caucus, which we saw on the Republican side when they had the house didn't really work out too well for them because they couldn't really coalesce and get a lot done.
1: Right, so, it was more about obstruction at that point.
0: Right, so the question is, yeah, you might be modeled on this and flexing your muscles, but are you going to prevent Democrats from achieving anything in this way? Or are you going to be able to use that power to achieve your specific goals, right?
1: True, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if we can say they're obstructing anything. No, at this certainly point. not, Right.
0: certainly not. The other thing that this brings to mind is an absolutely excellent episode of Politico's Deep Dive podcast, which kind of took over their Nerdcast. There's no Nerdcast is no more. And the episode was about Bernie Sanders and how he has really transformed himself from the progressive firebrand who mostly had things to say, but not a lot to do in the Senate to a real member of the leadership team of Chuck Schumer in the Senate and really working hand in hand with the Biden administration and Biden directly himself and how interesting it is, the relationship between Biden and Bernie and that this is something that was formed during the campaign and has really borne a lot of fruit over the last few months with, I think the Biden administration smartly recognizing the need to work closely hand in hand with probably the most famous and potentially most influential progressive out there, Bernie Sanders. But with Bernie Sanders now working kind of on the inside of the Biden team, here's AOC in the House kind of taking up the mantle on the outside.
1: Yeah, just very fascinating indeed, this, this growth overall. Brendan, what's your questionable that you saw today? So the questionable I had was from
0: Fox News Sunday. It was hosted by Dana Perino. We have seen her host in the past. To remind everybody, she is a regular face on Fox News. She's been on numerous broadcasts on the channel. She very much seems to come from the political commentator side of things, not necessarily the news side, although she is now co-host of America's Newsroom on Fox News, She previously served as the press secretary for George W. Bush's administration.
1: I always forget about that.
0: Yeah, but we shouldn't forget that, you know, doesn't preclude somebody from being fair-minded in their journalistic takes. Look no further than- George Stephanopoulos. George Stephanopoulos, who once gave briefings and was the communications director for President Bill Clinton. So Dana Perino, in her previous hosting gigs, On Fox News Sunday, I was not very pleased. I don't think you were either with the balance that she brought to the conversation. Or lack thereof. Yeah, it was very much from the perspective of Republicans and conservatives. But today, I actually think she did a much better job than I've seen her in the past. It could be her new role at Fox, the, the new job that she has there that started this year, or maybe she's just taking a different tact. However, however, I think as an interviewer, she has room to grow. So let's take a look at Dana Perino's interview with South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster, Republican governor. He previously served as lieutenant governor to Nikki Haley, long-term politician in South Carolina, one of the strongest accents I've ever heard on the Sunday shows, and somebody who was there to say... We are encouraging everybody in South Carolina to get vaccinated, but it's their personal choice. We are not putting in any sort of mask mandate, and people have to choose what's right for themselves. So in this question, you will hear Dana Perino reference an executive order that limits the ability of the state's Department of Health to pass new restrictions.
4: I know that you signed that um, executive order back on May 11th, um, but for your state Department of Health... Is there any flexibility within the law if the health experts say that they get new information that would allow for them to ratchet up some of the protections of the people? um, Or is it just a blanket? No masks. We're not going to do it.
5: It's a blanket. No mask. We're not going to do it unless the legislature comes in and passes a new law. This one lasts for one year and uh, that's, there's no exceptions to it.
0: So there, I don't know if you noticed. What Perino did there, she asked him a question where it was like, is it is it a or, you know, is there any flexibility or is it B? no mass? We're not going to do it. Like she kind of answered the question for him. She gave him an option to 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 choose to answer the question. And McMaster literally repeated her own suggested answer right in the question. She says, is it just a blanket? No mass. We're not going to do it. And he said, it's a blanket. No mass. We're not going to do it. Right. She made it so easy for him to say, yeah, we are not going to protect our population no matter what, unless there's another law passed. And this kind of like rubbed me the wrong way. It's like, why are you giving your interviewee such an easy out to provide their answer? But she didn't do it just once. She did it again, literally in the next question.
4: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about school. So I know that um, in the South, kids will, at least in some counties, go back in just a couple of weeks. How will you help basically deal with any tensions between perhaps teachers and parents when it comes to getting back into the classroom and this mask issue? Or do you think that won't be a problem in South Carolina?
5: I think there'll be uh, or some on the education side that will be calling for masks. But that question has already been answered. Uh, I gave had an executive order when we were still in a state of emergency.
0: So did you hear that? She just took the legs out from under her own question, right?
1: Yeah. It. What's weird to me is that she's already researched these mandates or these laws in South Carolina. And she's framing the question in a way that explores very little. So instead of saying, what do you plan on doing if new data comes in that requires new mitigations, but your law doesn't allow any changes? Right.
0: Are you going to do anything? What, what, what w- will w- you what do? What
1: would be the course of action? Instead, she says, can you do anything? But she knows he can't. It's very strange. It like assumes she knows the answer is no, but she just needs him to say it, as opposed to exploring anything of substance.
0: Well, and it, and in the second one, she says, "How will you deal with tensions between teachers and parents?" Right. That's that's an important question, right? If if parents want kids to be safer, there could really be tensions. How would you deal with that? And but then her next question is, "Or oh, do you think that won't be a problem?" <laughs> it's like it's such a weak question it's like Mr. President how are you going to deal with tensions between the U.S. and Russia or are there no tensions at all (laughs) like what why are you asking the question if you're if you're saying that the whole premise could be totally wrong it's basically like I'm going to ask you this tough question or do you think it's a dumb question (laughs) or my second question is or you could answer the question of like did I ask you a dumb question I just don't get it. I don't get why you do this, except to make it so easy for your guest, right?
1: I mean, it's easy for the guest and it's limiting for the viewer more. Like, it's not rewarding the viewer in any way because you're not probing as far as you could. Exactly.
0: And you might say, well, this is to make it easy on, you know, thinking, oh, well, maybe she's more from the right perspective versus the, the progressive perspective. So maybe she's making it easier on re- this Republican on the show. Well, here's the final example I have. It's later in the program. She's speaking to Brian Deese, the head of President Biden's National Economic Council, and she makes it easy on him, too.
4: So let me ask you about one of those issues, and that is coming out of COVID, and that was that there was an eviction moratorium that was put in place to help protect people from being kicked out of their homes when they couldn't work, when the government you know, shut the economy down. Uh, but now that has expired, as of last night. It's a real mess. It's been coming for months. Why wait until the last minute to address it? This, uh, the, I think, as I saw it, brought up on Thursday by the speaker, um, and now it's expired. Would the president like to see the Senate act on this and expand the moratorium and extend it going forward?
0: So (laughs) did you hear that? She had a really strong question initially, right? In fact, she said, this has been coming for months. Why wait until the last minute to address it? Period. Right? She's asking a Democrat who represents the Democratic administration. She's asking why Democrats waited until the last minute to address this issue. But then she goes on and she asks him a much easier question. Would the president like to see the Senate Act, you know, someone else do something about this? Why would you do that? Why would you make it so easy? Why wouldn't you stick with the tough question of why are Democrats? Why did they wait until the last minute on this?
1: Well, this is also the great risk of asking too many questions at once they can choose whichever one they want and sometimes you have a really good question in there and they're going to choose not to
0: yeah because you suggested an easier one for them to answer you're you you've defanged your own question not that all questions have to be like snakes
1: but sometimes they do
0: sometimes they do so hopefully dana perino if she continues to host the show you know, improves in her questioning. I think she's she's definitely got <laughs> the initial question. She's got the right idea initially, and then she just makes it too easy on, on, her, on her guess, and hopefully things change on that. We definitely saw over the course of Polylog's run lots of improvement from different hosts on different measures. I think more, you know, about another Dana, or Dana, I should say, and that's Dana Bash, who initially, when we started Polylog all those years ago was really bad and now she's really good
1: we were just unimpressed i don't yeah uh, that's harsh to say
0: well now that we're looking (laughs) she has like decades of
1: experience i don't want to say she's (laughs) really bad but we had many issues with her interviews on sunday yeah for sure
0: usually i'm the one going in there and smoothing over something strong that the that you said
1: listen i'm feeling nice today whatever (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. Well, that takes us to our first segment, which is your segment. What is it you wanted to focus
1: on today? Well, my niceness ends (laughs) because I was super annoyed at what I heard on State of the Union when Jake Tapper talked to Senator Susan Collins. Now, I talked about the January 6th insurrection and the select committee created by Pelosi to investigate it. This was kind of my segment last week. In case you missed last week's episode, I mainly looked at how the hosts themselves were framing this topic and whether or not they were kind of bringing the context of the last few months, mainly how Republicans have tried to thwart every effort to have a legitimate, thorough investigation about January 6th. Today, it's less about the journalist because Jake Tapper did a pretty good job here, but wow. The gaslighting by Senator Susan Collins. Oof. Unacceptable. And Susan Collins, I think, here just represents so many issues that I have with people who could be self-righteous on the surface, but the minute you look any closer, their indignation is completely shallow and falls apart. Take a listen to her comment about the January 6th insurrection and the type of investigation it deserved.
2: You supported uh, the failed effort to create an independent January 6th commission when it came to the Senate, although Senate Republicans ultimately defeated it uh, in general. The House has a new select committee. Uh, there are two Republican members, Kinsinger and Cheney, and they held their first hearing this past week. And frankly, uh, the four law enforcement officers testified. And it was gut wrenching testimony at times. Um, they, these are four who, who helped defend the Capitol, who helped defend you uh, that day. Take a listen. What makes the
6: struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful.
2: What do you think about the, and I'm not including you, but what do you think about the indifference shown to the law enforcement by Republican lawmakers that we have seen with even some people smearing them? And do you have faith in this bipartisan committee?
7: Well, first let me point out that I met with Mike Fanone and I met with other police officers uh, to hear about their physical injuries, their emotional trauma from that very dark day in our history. And they are still, the Capitol Police are still working 10 to 14 hours a day. They need more help. They risk their lives to defend everybody who was in the Capitol that day, including me. I fought very hard to have an independent, bipartisan, nonpartisan, outside commission to look at all of the events of that day. And uh, I'm very disappointed that it was not approved. I think it would have had far more credibility uh, than Speaker Pelosi's partisan um, committee that she has set up. But we should have had a 9-11 style commission to fully look at what happened. So some
1: key moments here. One, Very powerful use of a clip from the hearing at the select committee this week, specifically Officer Michael Fantone. And I thought a really effective question by Jake Tapper here saying, you know, what do you think about some of her Republican colleagues who are downplaying the violence that took place? And it seems like she comes off very concerned for the officers and very, disturbed by the events of January 6th and that there should have been, you know, a bipartisan 9-11 style commission. That's what she says should have happened. Yes. Now take a listen to this very important follow up by Jake Tapper, which clarifies a lot. And then hear how shallow her indignation is.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell opposed it, and that's why it didn't happen. I should You called it a partisan committee. I should note that there are two Republicans on the committee, Cheney and Kinsinger. Do you have faith in them?
7: I respect both of them, but I do <clears throat> not think it was right for the speaker to decide which Republicans should be on the committee. Normally, if you have a select committee, Uh, The minority leader and the speaker get to pick the members. Yeah,
2: I mean, just the reason she did that is because at least two of the members McCarthy picked to be on the committee are election liars, one of whom, Jim Jordan, is possibly even a material witness. He spoke with Trump that day.
7: Well, there were many communications with uh, President Trump that day. And, and look, as you know, I believe that, uh, he, that while the rioters are primarily responsible for what happened, there's no doubt in my mind that President Trump uh, helped instigate to, uh, uh, and motivate the riders. And uh, that's one reason I voted to impeach him. The hallmark of our democracy is the peaceful transfer of power. And for anyone, the writers, the president, anyone to try to interfere with the electoral college count is completely unacceptable. So this kind of shit really bothers me because you can't,
1: say something is completely unacceptable, that the violence is wrong, and then be completely okay with Republican members who encourage those rioters to be part of the investigation itself. Like, it fundamentally does not make sense for her to think that Jim Jordan and Jim Banks would be appropriate. But it's the e- like it's the easy criticism of Pelosi as opposed to like taking a stand and standing by Cheney and Kinsinger, who are doing the hard work of the Republican Party here. I, I just can't stand it so much. Like <laughs> it genuinely makes my skin crawl because it's people like this who are like, I'm so concerned and like they they want you to believe them that they're like looking out for the greater good. But when it's at the first moment of inconvenience, they will kind of drop it. And I think it's really important here that Tapper one mentions, actually it was McConnell who killed it. Right, right. Your own leader in your chamber. Killed it. and Killed the commission you wanted to the, the, Yeah, she wanted, exactly. And, and he calls out the two Republican congressmen that McCarthy wanted on the committee as election liars, which they were, which they are. If Tapper hadn't included those important clarifying points, like you would think Susan Collins is just like, you know, taking the high road for the Republican Party. And she's not like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are doing that work. Don't believe this type of shallow, this like shallow, like what's the? I just can't, I can't stand it so much. (laughs) It really drives me. You know what it reminds me of Brendan? Mm -hmm. Like when I was growing up and I would be, I grew up in a very religious household. And so we went to church every week. There were adults in the congregation who would judge teenagers on like their faithfulness or their modesty, but then wouldn't celebrate like academic achievements or wouldn't celebrate, you know, really significant athletic achievements that they like any achievements outside of the church would not necessarily be celebrated but somebody who was like a C or D student who brought like cupcakes for the congregation was like applauded like they were like some saint right when someone other some other teenager was like busting their ass because they were trying to achieve other goals for their family right and it's like it's that type of like disconnect inf- yeah disconnect or goggles about like what is right but when you then when you investigate it and it doesn't make any sense and they still expect you to believe them it drives me crazy and like susan collins is supposed to be a moderate republican right like right if if she can't stand next to liz cheney and defend her work like who is in the senate
0: right and that's where i think tapper's question was so powerful just to To correct and say, you know, you called it a partisan committee. It's technically not a partisan committee. There are two parties on the committee. Correct. And there are two members of the Republican Party on the committee. Do you have faith in them? Right? And that's a powerful question. Are you saying that these members are essentially Democrats right now? Is that what you're saying? Then she gets all into, you know, what happened with the.
1: Yeah, she makes that very important pivot. Then just kind of disgracing the work of the rioters and president trump but not defending the republicans who are trying to investigate it right exactly
0: and you know what could be added here is that mccarthy wanted to appoint a whole bunch of republicans pelosi objected to just two of them and then mccarthy pulled
1: all of them and cheney and kasinger decided to stay on it. right exactly Unacceptable. I wanted to kind of also share one more clip that's kind of tied to this a little bit in terms of like Republican introspection. And it's an interview on This Week, which again was hosted by Jonathan Carl when he talked to Congressman Adam Kinzinger. You know, I'm not trying to like say Kinzinger and Cheney are going to save the Republican Party, but if they're gonna, like, I'm going to applaud them. But (laughs) I applaud any effort of public criticism that is trying to make their party better or even calling out ludicrous, completely insane comments. Take a listen to this part of the interview on this week when Kinzinger is trying to explain why some of his Republican colleagues will go on and literally just not make any sense on national media.
6: And I have to ask you, but before this hearing before this you kicked off this first hitting hearing the republican leadership held a press conference where they placed blame for the riot on nancy pelosi uh, i want to play you a a sound from the conference chair elise Stefanik.
2: the american people deserve to know the truth that nancy pelosi bears responsibility as speaker of the house for the tragedy that occurred on january
8: six
6: i mean my god uh, they, 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 they've protected Donald Trump from, from blame here, and they're blaming Nancy Pelosi for the fact that Trump supporters invaded the Capitol, and, and including her office? Can you, can you explain to me what, what, what they're talking about? Yeah, to me it's mind-blowing, and it basically shows the desperation to try to derail this. Now, if you think about the different audiences that exist, there's the audience of the American people, and then there's the audience of Donald Trump. All Donald Trump needs to see is that you're making a defense no matter how nonsensical that defense is. So if that defense goes from, of course we all know it was Trump supporters and it was QAnon types that launched to this insurrection on the 6th. But if you stand in front of the proper news channel that Donald Trump watches and you say, um, this is Nancy Pelosi's fault, you've just done your job. It doesn't matter if it doesn't even make any sense anymore. What matters is that you've said something to placate him. And so, look, I mean, the speaker and I don't get along on a lot of things. On this case, we do, which is we need answers. It's been seven months. It's time to get to the bottom of this. And by the way, blaming what happened on January 6th on the security posture, and certainly we're going to get to the bottom of the security posture, but that's like blaming somebody for being the victim of a crime when the perpetrator actually executed that
1: crime. Now, explain to me why Susan Collins couldn't say something like this. There's absolutely no reason, except she has zero courage. Yeah, I think
0: that's just been demonstrated again and again, that she she talks the talk of a moderate, but she rarely will buck her party. Now, she did, as noted by Jake Tapper, vote to impeach Donald Trump, and that was a big deal when it happened. But that's one of the only times I can recognize that or see that. And I guess you could say she is... A part of the group of bipartisan senators who wants to get
1: the infrastructure, the
0: infrastructure package done. So
1: but still, like she's not not that I can think of willing to kind of go and make constructive criticism about her party, about where and why they should improve.
0: Yeah, very true.
1: So that was my frustration here with about the January 6th select committee and how Republicans are talking about it. There needs to be more Republicans beyond Cheney and Kissinger who care about finding out what happened on January 6th. I'd love for the Sunday morning shows to find out if any of them do. Or to say, you know, I'd be even interested in saying, we called blank number of offices and they didn't want to talk about it. Or just understanding the extent that they're doing to try to talk to Republicans about January 6th and the select committee. And how many Republicans just don't want to put their hands on it at all?
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, one of the things that this had me thinking of, trying to understand Susan Collins and what her answer was here, I think one read on it is she's just repeating the talking points of Republicans that, oh, you know, Pelosi has this partisan commission. But there is another possibility, I think, and that is that she is just you know, beside herself to see somebody not following the parliamentary rules of, if you have a select committee, you know, the other side gets to choose who's on it. And that's just how the rules are. And that's how the world works. And she just doesn't care that that completely invalidates the purpose of the committee because that's the rules, right? Like she's all about those rules. It reminds me of Joe Manchin, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, uh, You know the filibuster prevents democratic reform you know we have to preserve it because that is that's the rules that's the parliamentary rules those are the presidents and it doesn't matter i don't know maybe she's just she's just of that ilk she's just she doesn't care really as much about january 6th as she cares about the appearance of fairness in the rules
1: yeah i think that's definitely a possibility brendan what did you want to talk about today So I wanted to look and
0: really to a large extent spotlight some of the focused questioning by John Dickerson on Face the Nation. This is a real tour de force of somebody trying to get to the bottom of what the hell is going on with COVID-19, with the CDC, with the new Delta variant. And this is John Dickerson following the story across multiple interviews to get to a place where we kind of learn something new and feel like we have a much better understanding of what's going on. I was extremely impressed by what he did here and the way he did it and just threaded all these things together. But to start, I want to start outside of Face the Nation with a very simple New York Times breaking news alert, okay? Here's the alert in the form of a tweet that they sent on July 29th. I'm going to read it to you. Be prepared, it is not correct. This is not true. (laughs) Here's the alert. Breaking news. The Delta variant is as contagious as chickenpox and may be spread by vaccinated people as easily as the unvaccinated, an internal CDC report said. All right, that's what the New York Times said. Literally, one day later, Ben Wakana, he works for the White House COVID-19 response team, tweeted in reply, in all caps, vaccinated people do not transmit the virus at the same rate as unvaccinated people and if you fail to include that context you're doing it wrong i said that louder (laughs) because it was in all caps but this kind of encapsulates some of the mess of what happened last week and what happened last week was that the cdc decided to change their guidance they said that vaccinated people as well as unvaccinated people needed to be wearing masks in public spaces that was their recommendation it is not a mandate it is their recommendation particularly in areas where there is high covid 19 spread and they said that this is based on new information but the cdc did not provide that information fast forward one day And lo and behold, somebody leaked the information from the CDC to the Washington Post in the form of a PowerPoint that was put together by some folks within the CDC. They do not represent the official position of the CDC, but it was just an internal document that was leaked to the Post. This document was then itself leaked to, or released, I should say, by the Washington Post so everyone could look at it, and headlines such as the New York Times alert were written. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's just crazy. So really bad work on the CDC's part, on the Biden administration's part, whoever you want to point the fingers at, but also on the media's part for not really necessarily parsing the data properly. Now let's go to John Dickerson. Dickerson started his show with an interview with Anthony Fauci, President Biden's chief advisor on the coronavirus and still the head of the Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Diseases within the NIH. Dickerson wanted to know, what have we really learned that's new here?
8: John.
5: I'd like to start with the new thinking on COVID-19 that was part of the CDC's decision to change its mask guidance. We've been talking about the Delta variant for a while, but what is new in your understanding about the Delta variant this week?
8: Well, a confirmation of how easily it spreads from person to person, but also we found that individuals who get breakthrough infections namely people who are vaccinated, who might get infected. Almost invariably, they get either minimal symptoms or no symptoms at all. But since no vaccine is 100% effective, you're going to see breakthrough infections. But what we've learned that's new, John, in answer to your question, is that when you look at the level of virus in the nasopharynx of people who are vaccinated who get breakthrough infections, it's really quite high and equivalent to the level of virus in the nasopharynx of unvaccinated people who get infected. That's very different from the alpha variant. The alpha variant, the level of virus in a vaccinated person was extremely low compared in the, in, in, in the vaccinated people compared to the unvaccinated people. Not so with Delta. So we know now that vaccinated people who get breakthrough infections can spread the virus to other people.
0: So there it is, that's kind of the big headline vaccinated people can spread it but we are told that they are le- less likely to get it than unvaccinated people but john dickerson wanted to kind of like dig in here and try to understand if this is really that different from what we had already known
5: let me ask you about context here in the cdc document there was an expression uh, someone wrote the war has changed based on these new findings But isn't the war essentially the same as it was, which is there are pockets of the country where there are not people getting vaccinated as much as they should be. And that's the big issue. And that that hasn't changed this week at all, despite what we've just been talking about for the last four minutes.
8: You're absolutely correct. We have 100 million people in this country, John, who are eligible to be vaccinated, who are not vaccinated. We've really got to get those people to change their minds, make it easy for them, convince them, do something to get them to be vaccinated because they are the ones that are propagating this outbreak. So you're absolutely correct. That hasn't changed. What has magnified the problem, John, is that we're now dealing with a virus that has an extraordinary capability of spreading from person to person. So when you superimpose one on the other, you have a very difficult situation. A pool of unvaccinated people and a virus that spreads very efficiently.
0: So good for John Dickerson in focusing the conversation, you know, for the audience's benefit on the real issue, which is people who are unvaccinated. But that doesn't mean that Dickerson was really done with trying to understand kind of the issue surrounding that tweet that we read in the beginning, right? Like how much are vaccinated people really at risk of getting this new virus and spreading it, because that was kind of at the heart of the CDC's new recommendations. Here he is, later in the show, speaking to the Minister of Health for the country of Israel. Now, Israel, if you recall, was the fastest and first country to really vaccinate a large portion of their population. And now, they were recently announcing they're going to be encouraging people who are 60 and older to get a booster shot of the vaccine as they believe that will help improve a potentially waning protection against the Delta variant.
5: On the question of mask mandates, uh, Israel has reinstated those. Are you seeing the same thing that, uh, that seemed to concern officials here in the United States about those who are vaccinated being capable of spreading Um, and that that was a finding they hadn't seen here in the States before?
9: So we're we're looking at that. We're trying to um, introduce back what we call the Green Pass, which means people can go into events uh, with a certificate that they have been vaccinated or recovered individuals or to be tested. In order to continue with this policy, we needed to check if vaccinated individuals can infect others. We know that they can be infected. We see them. They're 50 percent of the uh, confirmed cases on a daily basis now. But the question is whether they can infect others. And we actually saw that 80% of vaccinated individuals who have become confirmed cases themselves, 80% of them have zero contacts that have been confirmed. And another 10% have have only one uh, contact that that was confirmed to be a case uh, because of their connection with this uh, individual. So their ability to, um, to infect others is um, 50% lower than those who are not vaccinated.
5: So just so I make it abundantly clear, those you, you found that there is some very small amount of those who've been vaccinated who can spread, but it's quite small. The majority of those who've been vaccinated you yeah. found are not spreading.
9: Exactly, exactly. There is a spread among household contacts. Um, but if we take household contacts out of the equation, this, the, the, the risk of, of confirmed case who is vaccinated to infect others is about uh, 10% for to infect one other individual and lower than 10% to infect more than one.
0: All right. So this actually gives us some real numbers, right? That at least in Israel where they also are dealing with the variant, vaccinated people of them didn't spread it to another person, you know, a single person at all. And that mostly that was people within their own household when it was spread to those folks.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really great get in terms of a scud. I think this is a really great get in terms of an interview because so many times we... Talk about things that are happening in other countries Or there might be You know Face the Nation often has What Liz Palmer talking about What's happening in other countries You know global correspondence But to have a public health official From a country that's a few months ahead of us I think you know it's interesting That none of the shows had somebody from the UK Who has experienced the Delta variant A few you know two to three months ahead of us as well Like there isn't like the foresight To think like what does the numbers show in other places and what can we learn from that?
0: Right, and particularly a place that is kind of one step ahead of us, having had so many more people vaccinated and doing it earlier than we did it. And I, by the way, I don't think I said the name of the Israeli health minister. This is Dr. Sharon Alroy Price, who we just heard from. But Dickerson still wasn't done. He still wasn't done because after this conversation with Dr. Alroy Price, John Dickerson, of course, had on Scott Gottlieb. He asked Gottlieb about this exact same issue, and he did it in the context of bringing back and reminding everyone what we heard earlier in the broadcast from Dr. Fauci about that idea that vaccinated people had the same amount of virus in the back of their nose as unvaccinated people.
5: So Dr. Fauci said that they found in this Provincetown study that there, the amount of virus in the nasopharynx was the same as somebody who had not been vaccinated. So help me understand, that seems like if, you have, if there's a breakthrough case, then you've got the ability to spread if it's in the nasopharynx. But then what Dr. Alroy E. Price was saying was a, that it seemed like a much smaller group of people in the breakthrough category that could pass it on. So help me understand maybe the d- disconnect between those two.
10: Right, the CDC is inferring from this study that there's a risk of transmission in vaccinated individuals. And effectively, what they saw was what Dr. Fauci said high levels of the virus in the nasopharynx of individuals who were vaccinated and became subsequently infected on par with the level of virus that you would see in someone who wasn't vaccinated. But we know two things. First of all, nasopharyngeal swabs, the virus titers that you see in those nasopharyngeal swabs, while it's suggestive of someone's ability to spread the virus, it doesn't prove that they're able to spread the virus. So it's not a perfect correlate with your ability to transmit the virus and how contagious you are. You really want to measure virus levels in the lower airways because that's where aerosols are created. And we know that you spread this virus through aerosols. We also have other evidence that came out out this week that people who are vaccinated even if their viral titers are very high initially for the first 24 hours after they become infected even if they become even if they're asymptomatic and infected we know their viral titers fall much more quickly than those who are unvaccinated so maybe after a day or two days or three days, they're much less likely to spread the virus than someone who remains unvaccinated. So initially, someone who's vaccinated may may have the same level to spread the virus, may ha- be on par with someone who's unvaccinated, but their ability to spread the virus probably diminishes more quickly. And therefore, out in the community, if you were measuring their ability to transmit the virus, you would probably see on the whole, they're less likely to be contagious.
0: Just excellent, excellent question here by John Dickerson, trying to reconcile the two answers on this issue that he received in the show, right? He's bringing these things back and he's saying, "Look, I'm watching these interviews just like the audience is watching and I'm trying to make sense of it." And we've got Scott Gottlieb here. Dr. Gottlieb's going to be able to make sense of it for us, and sure enough he does.
1: Yeah, that's great. I it reminds me on State of the Union Jake Tapper talked to, and I forget his first name, but it's Dr. Collins, the head of NIH. Dr. Francis Collins. Francis Collins, right. And Jake Tapper had kind of really easy to follow scenarios where they're like, okay, the CDC is saying... We should mask up because of these nasal fairings that are you know they kind of went through the whole science of it and then he was like but what about vaccinated people hanging out with other vaccinated people like can we still do that can we is that okay it felt it had kind of the vibe of a gottlieb (laughs) interview where it's Mm -hmm. like this is the takeaway right like well I'm, i'm here to try to explain the science and you know be part of the strategic public health messaging but here Here's the day-to-day takeaways. And it feels and, and so...
0: And Dr. Collins did that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also partly due to Jake Tapper's questions, he kind of guided the conversation in that way. But it really needs to be an expectation, I feel like, of the host to try to reach that type of understanding for their viewer. It's not just a matter of like, oh, I have a public health expert. Like, tell us what what's happening now. Like, you have to kind of want your audience to understand how this impacts you know, when they when they go to work or when their kid goes to camp or goes to school or whatever.
0: Right. Exactly. And what I really appreciated from John Dickerson here is that he wasn't satisfied with the first answer that he got from Dr. Fauci, right? He, he dug deeper and he explored more information, you know, beginning with the Israeli health minister well, I guess I could say beginning with Fauci, right? He he dug into some of Fauci's answers, and then he spoke to the Israeli health minister, and then he got more follow-up from Dr. Gottlieb. And in a topic as complicated as this, where you have people saying things like, um, you know, first of all, na- nasopharyngeal swabs, the virus titers that you see in the nasal swabs, you know what I mean? You're like, what? How are we having these conversations on a Sunday morning show? That seems very, very, very technical. You know, so in an issue that is so technical, it's really helpful to have multiple guests on and to have a host who is paying attention and is willing to dig into a topic. And this is an important topic, right? This is a topic that is upending, potentially, everyone's thinking about this virus right now and their level of safety. So it's, it's critically important. Now, the final thing I'll say, unrelated to Dickerson and what he did here, is I agree with you on the Dr. Francis Collins thing. I think Dr. Collins did a better job than I've seen Fauci do on a lot of occasions on those types of real world, just like tell me what you recommend sort of questions. I, also, I actually saw an instance of that on Fox News Sunday, and I thought it might be a nice way to end this segment and end the show. Dana Prino asking the question.
4: All right. Um, I also wanted to ask you about this. So I, it, this is about my mom, but I do think this is representative of a lot of people across America. So for the last she's 74 years old for the last 18 months, she's done all the right things. They've stayed home. They, she has on her bucket list a road trip to New England. She lives in Denver. She'd love to see the colors this fall, but she's concerned. Um. I think that as she is fully vaccinated, this is a trip she should take and take the right precautions if she needs to in a crowded area. But what say you about people uh, getting back to living their lives and learning to live with the virus?
2: I think she should definitely go. I think she should do all the careful things. Obviously, wear a mask during public transportation, because that's still a really smart thing and required in most places. And as you say, wear a mask indoors in crowded places. But actually, New England is doing a lot better than the rest of the country. Uh, So she's going to a place where the infection rates are quite a bit lower. I would still urge her to do all those cautious things. But, yeah, go and enjoy the colors. Uh, This is uh, not a reason to stay home at this point. We've made a lot of progress here compared to where we were a year ago. We just don't want to do silly things to cause the Delta virus to come back even stronger.
4: All right. Dr. Francis Collins, a pleasure to have you this morning. Thank you so much.
0: So I really appreciated that. You know, go out, go see the fall colors, take precautions. But, you know, we're in a different place than we were last year. And let's not forget that.
1: And take precautions. Yes. But he did make the point. New England's in a better place, so yeah. traveling to Florida, uh -uh. (laughs) we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, (laughs) but (laughs) seeing leaves in New Hampshire, probably fine. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's true, but I really do appreciate that because I feel like we've seen questions like this and I do remember questions like this to Fauci and he's like, well, it depends on your risk tolerance level. And, you know, some people are going to have a high risk tolerance and a low risk tolerance. And you really have to think about what, where you're coming from and how you're getting there and where you're doing. And it's like, just, can you just give us your recommendation, please?
1: I think risk tolerance is a very important conversation, but I hear what you're saying, Brendan. Yes.
0: yes. Just give us a straight answer. And I feel like Dr. Collins did a pretty good job with that.
1: Well, that's it for today's episode. This week for our dialogue challenge. Yeah. How about a
0: conversation about maybe just like reveling in multiple sources? I think there's a lot of situations where we have conversations with others and They say, oh, you know, I heard from this, you know, this one source or this one place about this interesting fact. And I feel like naturally you'll, you know, someone will respond with, oh, yeah, you know, I heard that as well. Or, you know, I heard from somewhere else that it's a little different from that or the the story might be a little a little different. And I think sometimes we don't want to, like, correct others in our conversations or, you know, we don't want to be rude and say, well, you know, uh, I don't think you have that right. But I think we should revel in that. We should say, look, you know, I, I heard something a little different on this, and, and here's where I heard it, and let's have a conversation about that, right? We'd, we'd, I'm not trying to start an argument here, but, you know, there's different sources out there, and I think, as John Dickerson showed, you know, the conversation can be made a lot richer if we embrace those differences rather than try to throw them under the rug or, or not bring them up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The heart of a dialogue is just hearing from multiple perspectives, exactly. just to listen, not yeah. to convince.
0: Very good point. So if you have something that you want to share with us, but maybe not convince us of, I don't know, <laughs> you can do that by emailing us at podcast at com. You can follow me at beast on Twitter.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at PolylogCast. Thanks everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.